So we have been talking about vivid, brilliant colors, and light. And it probably can be encapsulated very well, and we did this uh, about three weeks ago. You that are people who have been raised in a church setting, a traditional church setting, probably know the song. And we're going to sing it together again one more time. And you're going to do the motions. And some of you already know where I'm headed. And if you don't know the song, oh, you'll catch on quick. And you get to do the motions too. So take your finger. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a... <laughs> Hide it under a bushel. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Don't let Satan... It... I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan... It out. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Now some of you are thinking, I am glad I was not raised in the church. <laughs> so that is exactly in song what Jesus the Messiah said. And I want you to see what he said in Matthew the fifth chapter. You can use your own Bible, it's the beginning of the New Testament. Or you can use the outline that you had in your service folder, and it says this. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the what? The God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. Now, if I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand, and now that I put you there on a hilltop on a light stand... Shine. Keep open house. Be generous. Circle that word. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Now, when Jesus said, you are the colors, he wasn't talking to a specific individual who had incredible ability. He was talking to a group of people who had put or were going to put their faith in what Jesus told them. And they would follow him and believe what he said. And he as a rabbi would teach them the truth and that they would emulate that lifestyle and have the ability to do so and tell other people. So he said, I'm telling you, you all are the colors of God. So how many in here say I'm a follower of Jesus? All right, turn to the person who raised their hand next to you and say, you are a color of Jesus. Ask them, what color are you? <laughs> I personally come from the winter side of things. So here's the deal. He said, you are the colors. And what is important about that is that we know that when Jesus said, you are the light, we know where light comes from. And we've shown you that if you take a prism and you flash light through that, bright light, and I think we have an image of that, I hope. There we go. You see the colors. Take those colors, merge them together, and what do you get? You get light. 
So he said, when you merge together by doing good deeds, you become a light that people say, oh, 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 there's our creator. There's God. He's here. You know, you did that last time I said those words. Right on cue. So there we are. He says, you are the light. By doing good deeds. Now, we need to understand what those good deeds are. This scripture portion said, by being generous to others, by opening your lives, by being an open house, if you will. So, I'm going to have you stand one more time. Stand. So they say, Jesus, what's the good deed stuff? And Jesus says, there's two. I'm going to simplify this for you. Down to two things, and all of life ebbs and flows from these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the way we do that, according to the followers of Jesus, and especially John, is that he loved us so that we could love him. And so God opens up his life to us, and we respond by saying we receive. So we did this... Uh, a while back, just put your hands up like this. We did it last week. And we say, okay, we receive God. And in doing so, we're responding back to him and saying, we love you. We take what you have. We love you. Now, he says, when I do that, I'm beginning to change who you are. When God pours himself into us, he changes who we are. And we begin to reflect the colors of who he is. And he says, here's what happens. Now, because you're like this, when it comes to relationship with others, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And so then we just open our arms toward each other. Do that. Just kind of reach toward each other. And then even embrace if you want to. Go ahead. And you can be seated. When we begin to use that which God has poured into us, you see, we've just spent a while worshiping God, and what has been happening is he's been doing this thing we call transformation. He's changing us into his colors. In fact, Paul the Apostle, writing to the the church in Corinth, said that you're being changed from glory to ever-increasing glory, meaning the beauty and the color of God is coming up in your life, and it's being seen. It got so brilliant for Moses that when he came down from meeting with God, all the colors combined, and he just had this brilliance about his face, and he had to cover it with a veil so they couldn't see it fading. It was that brilliant. And he only saw where God had been, not even where God was. So, so you're being changed from glory to ever-increasing glory. This, this coloring is coming out of your life as you open your hearts, and we share our lives generously. People see that, and they go, wow, there's God. So here's the deal. When the generosity of God is seen through humanity and through flesh, it is an attractive light. A while back, Coca-Cola went to a college campus and established a very unique Coca-Cola machine in what looks like the student commons building. And here's what happened.
I want one. Do you catch the last line, where will happiness strike next? I want to propose to you that happiness strikes where the generosity of God is seen in flesh. You see, I bet that up until that point, those students who walked by a Coke machine thought, oh, a dispenser, a machine, nice. Those students, from that point on, every time they pass a Coke machine, they're thinking, could it be? Could there be something more? I believe, especially in America today, People are driving by church buildings at this moment and they're thinking, oh, look, a dispenser of something. But should it not be that when they come to a place or go by a place where there's a gathering of believers in Jesus, they should be thinking, what are they going to do? What is the generosity that's going to flow from that place? There needs to be an anticipation. The church, the followers of Jesus should be in such a place in their living together that the world around them is wondering what is going to be dispensed and they're going to be anticipating something more than they could have ever expected. And when they do that, it's not coming up and and hugging a Coke machine. I love you, Coke. It's finding the creator behind all of this and saying, oh, I love you. Look what you've done. That's why Matthew said, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father. Wouldn't it be wonderful that the reputation of the believers in Jesus was such that when you talk to anybody in this city, they said, yeah, when they get together, amazing, generous things happen. But we have an obstacle. And and we in the church like to blame other things and peoples and agencies for are obstacles. It's those liberals. It's them. They're the problem. It's those atheists. Now really the problem, as we discover, is just us. Two years ago, a survey was done of people in the United States who had not been in church, any church setting, any gathering of believers in Jesus for six months. They were labeled as unchurched. And here's what they discovered about these folks that hadn't been in a gathering, a worship gathering for six months. That most lean to a generic God that fits into every imaginable religious system, even when systems contradict one another. Paul the Apostle, as we'll see, will call that the wisdom of man. But interestingly, as they were interviewed, they were very, very open to talk about Christianity and the teachings of Jesus. But here's what they said. They believe that Christianity is more of an organized religion than it is loving God and loving people. And that's what we're supposed to be doing anyhow. And yet nobody seems to be seeing that these who don't come to a worship gathering. We're not quite the light we thought we were, and so my question this morning is, what do we do about that? How do we correct that? If you go to a fitness center and say, I want to get in shape, more than likely one of the things they're going to talk to you about in getting in shape is getting your core strengthened. 
The core, they tell us, is, is the abdominal muscles and the back. Because if you can get this strengthened, everything else comes in alignment. I want to talk to us this morning about the core. The core that will bring us to the place that we love God and we love others as Jesus has loved us. And the core starts at this one spot. We must make the cross the core of our passion. Now, when I say the cross, I want you to understand I'm talking about the whole Easter message. I'm talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, for it's all intertwined together. I'm not talking about the cross that you may have on your bumper sticker. I'm not talking about the cross that's above this church. I'm not talking about these, these crosses that, that actually are, are bookends on my desk. In fact, interestingly, it may surprise you that the symbol of the cross never became public and displayed to represent followers of Jesus until 100 years after Jesus left this earth. And you want to know why? Because to believe that your God got himself executed by his enemies and flaunt that is insanity. How could you do that? That would be like you coming to some social gathering, some party, and, and wearing a button on it with Charles Manson's picture. You remember Charles Manson? And people go, what's that? He's my hero! And you think, you're nuts. Can you imagine walking through life saying, Jesus, the guy that, that's a criminal of the state, Jesus, the one that was executed by the Romans, that one who said he was the Messiah and they killed him, that one, yeah, he's the one. I believe in him. It was so insane that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and explained how insane it was. And we find that in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. We're going to hang out in the book of Corinth, or in the book of Corinthians this morning. And so you may want to just turn there. 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles or to the Greeks. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This morning, he's, he's addressing two groups of people, and I just want to split you up. You all over here, you all are Greeks. So say something Greek to each other. Say, say, um, Alpha, Gamma, Delta, something. Just a... Right. You all over here are Jews. So say something Jewish to each other. Shalom. A lot easier for you, wasn't it? Shalom. Now, here's the problem. When Jesus showed up, you all Jews here, you were expecting a Messiah who would bring about the second exodus because you read about how he came to your fathers as they were in bondage in Egypt and performed miraculous signs. And therefore, the one coming after him will come and this Messiah will come and he will bring you an exodus, and he will produce it with miraculous signs. So they said, authenticate that you're the Messiah. Validate by all the signs and wonders. Give us those miracles and we'll believe. Now you Greeks, 
You're different than the Jews because, see, the Jews say, come through my heart and my belief system, it'll change my mind. The Greeks over here, they say, hey, come through my mind and it will change my heart. So if you will reason with me and show me an intellectual understanding of why you should be the Messiah and you are the Son of God and, and explain that to me so it's irrefutable, then I will begin to believe and figure out a way to appease you. So we'll figure this out and you can become a list, on, uh, come, become part of the list we have of our gods. So you all want signs and you all want wisdom and you know what God gives them? Foolishness and weakness. He gives them Christ crucified. Messiah crucified. That makes as much sense as fried ice. Because you can have a Messiah. And you can have a crucifixion. But there is no way that you're going to combine those two together. And that is why you can parade him down the streets of Jerusalem and say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and, and declare him king with a royal entrance. And days later, put him on a cross and say, we'll give you one more chance. Validate, validate that you're the Messiah and prove that you're powerful. Come off that cross and help us with our exodus from this Roman occupation. Instead, Jesus dies as a state criminal, not living as a powerful monarch. And for the Jews, that, that really was a stumbling block. See, the Jews would not hang anybody. But they would stone you. And when you were dead, they would hang you on a tree because their law says, cursed by God is anyone who hangs on a tree. And now they look at this so-called Messiah and he's hanging on a tree and they say, there is no way that he can be the Son of God. It can't happen. So here's the mystery. They want wisdom. They want signs. And since God is all-powerful and all-wise, why can't he give that to them? He did. The crucifixion was God's wisdom and God's power. In fact, it's from this place of the cross that Paul says he calls us, he invites us to come back home into the loving arms of our Creator. He said, I'm not calling you from a base of power. I'm not calling you from miraculous signs. We in America love miraculous signs. We, we love the energy that it creates. We love the presence of the Almighty. So let the word get out that there's a, a series of healings and everybody who wants to know God rushes to that spot. A couple years ago, Pam and I found ourselves when we were on sabbatical down near Lakeland, Florida, and there was a healing ministry happening there, and it was on television four hours a night. And so we said, we need to go check this thing out. So we went and sat there. And I can tell you that I believe some miraculous things happened. But people were coming from all over the world to see the signs. And you say, what did you think? I think there were God moments, and I think there were human moments, because we're human. But here's my problem. For four hours of night, they had to worship and keep producing miracles so people would keep watching on television. 
And what would have happened if Jesus did at that moment what he did when he was here on earth, where he'd go into a village and begin to heal people, and then they would come back for more and he would disappear? Oh, read it. They, and they'd go try to hunt him down, find where he is, because they wanted more. And they finally came to him and said, give us one more sign. And he said, I'm done with signs. You're not going to believe me anyhow. In fact, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, which simply was this. Jonah's preaching and Jonah's presence, that's all you get. Jesus said, I've come to the place that you want miraculous signs, but I'm going to give you the truth and I'm going to give you me. And if you can't take that, then you're going to have a problem because I'm giving you no more power. And how careful we must be because we say, oh, Jesus, look what you're going to do for us. So now free me up. Deliver me from my problems. Get me my job. Pay my cable bill. And when he doesn't, we go, oh, I must not be the Messiah. And Jesus said, you're not even seeing what I'm saying. Well, we say, well, you know, if you could just give us some irrefutable proof, if you could just tell us and show us in a way that we know that you are Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and all that stuff is is true. If you could just show us that, that'd be great. For two years, I'll call him Tom. Tom sat in our church outside of Portland, Oregon. For two years, Tom, an incredible intellectual, and an atheist, sat in our gatherings every Sunday morning. For two years, I gave him my best shot. I gave him really, really good sermons. And some, you know, that weren't so good. For two years, I presented to him Jesus. And for two years, he'd say, don't get it. (laughs) Don't get it. One Sunday, he came up to me after the service was over. He said, hey, Pastor Jack, just want to let you know that I put my faith in Jesus. And he walks off. I said, no, 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 come back here. Come, come back here. In my mind, I'm thinking, which sermon did it? I said, how did that happen? He said, I was just at home, and, and I just said, God, if this stuff is real, I've got to know this. And He said, somehow God just showed me. And I know it's real. It's there. Here's what he understood. The problem with sin, and how many of you would say that you have ever offended God or other people? How many say you did that this week? (laughs) It's so true. And here's the problem with sin. It's self-propagating. It continues to grow in us. It's like, a, it's like a cancer seed, and you can't stop it. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It continues to grow. In fact, it's interesting, in the book of Romans, when Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he said this to them. He said, the problem with sin is that it continues this downward cycle. And you keep, you keep thinking you're going to get a handle on it, and you're not, and you're getting worse. And it says this, you get so sinful that you try to invite other people to join you in your sin. And then he even says this, and you invent ways of being evil. Because it just gets worse. And you say, how many of you ever had a, a really bad habit, and you say, I'm going to stop it, but you just had trouble stopping it? Ever, ever been there? And, and you, you say, I'm trying, but I can't, I'm trying, I can't, I can't. And because it's more powerful than we are. In addition, it's incredibly destructive. 
Because when we decide we're going to try to live our lives without God, without following and believing in Him and depending on Him, we disconnect ourselves from His abilities. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, those abilities of God. And so I'm disconnected from God, and as I do that, the destructiveness around me just keeps building inside of me. When Adam and Eve said, I'm not going to trust God, I'm going to trust my own desires, my own evil, they took their lives and handed it over to that evil. And see, that's what we do. The law is this, whomever you obey is your master. And so when they handed it over to Satan, they handed over the rulership of this earth, and as they did, Satan then began to do what he does, which is destroy anything created by God. So when I take my life and I say, I'm going to try to run it myself and follow my own desires, Satan then takes control of that, and his goal is to destroy me. So how do you do that? How do you stop that? How do you have enough power to to put an end to that? Here's what happened. God puts on flesh, comes down to earth, and he says, I will take everything that you've got inside of you that's destroying you and put it on me because I have this flesh. I'm putting it on my flesh. And you see, the natural consequence of that is then the destruction. There has to be death. It just follows. So I will die. So on a cross, he takes our sin, and when he said it is finished, he said, I've taken it all. And I'm paying for it, and he dies. That is the final conclusion. He's paid it. Now, because he's God, he does not stay dead. He says, now, I will take death that is meant to destroy you because of your sin, and I will not make it a dead end, but I will make it a thoroughfare. So everybody who believes in me will now follow me in death and now in my resurrection. So he says to death, you can't hold them there. They will come with me and rise with me so that they will live forever. And the power that lifted me from the grave and the power that I have with my kingdom, I now give to them so that as they come out of this and they are free from that sin and free from that death, they can now live a life that I want them to have. My power is in them. Who would have ever thought that would happen? He outsmarts man, and he overpowers all the powers of this earth by his forgiveness and his grace. And that's why Paul says that's the core. He's got to start there. He said, that's why I preach that, the cross. Now, what do you do with that? If the cross is the core of our passion then Jesus must be the core of our choices. I've been a follower of Jesus for over 50 years. I don't remember when I accepted Jesus into my life or put my faith in him. I just remember just being conscious of that all the time. I know I must have at some point. But it's been over 50 years, although I'm only 35 years old. And it's interesting, you'd think that after I've been following Jesus for 50 years, everything would be in order. But when we began our 40-day corporate fast in this church this last January, as I was praying, God, what will happen during this fast, I, like no other time we've had these 40-day corporate fasts, heard God say to me, impress in me, I want us to deal with the stuff that you still have in you. I have some stuff in me. And here's what I discovered. The moment I hide any part of me from the Easter message, from the cross, I open myself to hypocrisy. In fact, 72% of the people 
almost eight out of every ten who do not attend church say that one of the reasons they don't is because of the hypocrisy in the church. So let me define hypocrisy for you. Hypocrisy is not my inability to be perfect. Hypocrisy is my unwillingness to be authentic. That is my hypocrisy. For me to come in here and tell you I am so cool and then go home and hide this stuff. See, here's the deal. I cannot, I cannot be nasty in my living. I cannot be nasty in the way I treat people. I cannot be nasty in my opinions and my outlook and then just keep it there and say, but the blood of Jesus still covers me, I'm okay. Because I'm going to tell you the truth. That if Jesus' death is in me, then I am in constant transformation. And that I am wide open and I say to people around me, I am not perfect. And here's my life, but Jesus is working on it and he's changing me. That's what Paul said to the church at Corinth. He said it would be extremely obvious and he says this in 1 Corinthians 1.30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is what? Read it with me. Our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. When you put your faith in Jesus, God says, I take you and I put you in Jesus, and he is my wisdom. And when I do that, he becomes for you these three things that are so vitally important for us to understand and activate in our lives. He said, he becomes your righteousness. You've got to understand what that means. His righteousness means simply this, that at one point, Jason, stand up. If Jason is God, and you're not, if Jason is God, in my sin, I have had a great distance from him because I am his enemy. I can't get to him. Jesus comes and says, I will take your sin, and I will be the distance from God, because when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, he says, my God... What? Why have you forsaken me? We switched paces. Jesus just switched with me and said, I will be minus from God. So if I, if Jesus takes my place and he's away from God, where does that leave me? Next to God. Righteousness says that not because I live it right, but because I put my faith in Jesus and we did this exchange thing, I stand before God. And he likes me. Some of you don't believe that God likes you. That he's always crushing you and he won't give you what you want because you're just not the right person. Jesus said, I took that for you. And God says, hey, baby, hug me. He really doesn't say, hey, baby. But he says, let's embrace. Well, he could say that. Thanks, Jason. He says, I'm giving you righteousness now. You've got to live that way. He says, I give you redemption. Redemption simply means you were abducted. You were kidnapped. You were imprisoned. And a ransom call came in. And you answered it. And after you answered it, you turned your cell phone off. <laughs> Whoever you were, great. You're right on time. Thank you. You were ransomed, and Jesus said, I came and I rescued you and I brought you home. That is amazing. And then he said, in Jesus you have holiness. 
That word holy was first used of the Jews when they came out of the Exodus. And it meant that these who came out of the Exodus moved into the full blessings and promises of Jehovah. And holiness became their identity. We are new people who reflect the king's character. I don't know how else to say this to you, but here's the deal. God says to us, if you have put your faith in Jesus, I have put you in Jesus. You are now before God. You have been rescued. You're not back where you used to be, so quit living over there. And especially to the church at Corinth, as he's telling him this, they know who they belong to and why they're in Jesus, but they're living like they're still back and back where they were abducted. He said, free yourself up and come with me and live in the fullness of the blessings that I have for you. And let your lifestyle reflect the king. You know the king by way his subjects live. And he said, you've got to live that way. And it becomes obvious. So then what transpires is this. We must make the spirit the core of our community action. To Paul, the Holy Spirit is everything. He says, look, if the Holy Spirit is moving right here, right now in your midst, it is the mark of a change of the ages. There's a turning of the ages. That those who have put their faith in Jesus have now become, if you will, spirit beings. And it's never happened before. That Jesus is ushering in a new age. That what he has accomplished by his resurrection and the kingdom that he lives in now can be distributed by you on this earth and you have the ability to understand what the Spirit of God is doing around you. Pastor Jason, how long have you been married to Sarah? Five years. What date was that? January 15th. So can you right now tell me what she's thinking? You you don't know. Who knows what she's thinking? Only she does. See, you only know what you're thinking because nobody else can truly guess that because your own spirit knows that. And here's what Paul says, and it's a rather lengthy passage, but I want you to hear it this morning. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. Whoever knows what you're thinking and planning except you yourself. The same with God, except that he not only knows what he's thinking, but he also lets us in on it. God offers a full report on the gifts of life and the salvation that he's giving us. We don't have to rely on the world's guesses and opinions. We didn't learn this by reading books or going to school. We learned it from God who taught us person to person through Jesus. And we're passing it on to you in the same first-hand personal way. The unspiritual self, just as it is by its nature, can't receive the gifts of God's Spirit. There's no capacity for them. They seem like so much silliness. The Spirit can be known only by the Spirit, and God's Spirit and our spirits are in open, communica- open communion. Spiritually alive, we have access to everything God's Spirit is doing and can't be judged by unspiritual critics. Isaiah's question, is there anyone around who knows God's spirit, anyone who knows what he is doing, has been answered. Christ knows, and we have Christ's spirit, or your translation may say, but we have the mind of Christ. We are not clueless to what God is doing in this world. 
Pam sent me this joke the other day, and I feel free to read it to you because she is a blonde, and it is a blonde joke. And therefore, I have permission because she sent it to me. If you are a blonde, don't send me a letter. During a recent password audit, it was found that a blonde was using the following password. Mickey, Minnie, Pluto, Huey, Louie, Dewey, Donald, Goofy, Harrisburg. When asked why she had such a long password, she said she was told that it had to be at least eight characters long and include at least one capital. You ever been labeled clueless? Now, please hear me. You have been told you're clueless. You have been told by the world around you, how can you believe that? And, and how can you give that? And how can you trust those people? And how can you forgive that? And why do you gather on Sundays? What is the deal with that? You have been told you're clueless. And even in the church, you think you're clueless because we hire people to have clues. They're pastors, and so they have a clue as to what's going on, or they're a prophet, they're an apostle. I want you to understand that you are not clueless. We need to overcome the opinion that we can't match up against the philosophies of those we fear or the abilities of those we admire. He said the Holy Spirit is taking us beyond the wisdom of this world. And he's teaching us the scripture says, the Logos, the message of Jesus, and in its entirety, what it means. That he, the things that he has freely given us means the things that, that he's doing in this world and his gifts to us and his blessings to us and what his salvation process, the death and resurrection, means to us and how it changes us. And we need to understand that. And he said, I'm showing you that. And then it teaches you how to live. And Paul said, you sit there and you say, I'm too lowly to understand this. I'm, I'm, I'm just not noble enough. I'm not, I'm not smart enough. And just before this passage, he says, he takes the lowly and he takes those who are not noble. He takes the average person. He takes the person who, who is a blue-collar worker. He takes the average person who just says, I can't, I can't do this. And he says, I put within you the spirit of the Almighty so that you can understand what I'm doing in the world around you and how I want to live in your life. I've given you that ability. So why go on a Sunday morning and say, we hired him to know, tell us what you're going to do, God, and then you go home and wait till the next gathering to say, what's he doing? God said, I'm telling you right now, 24 hours a day, what I'm doing in your life because I've given you the mind of Christ. You can discern this. And therefore, it only works when I can take the colors of who you are and you can understand what I'm doing in you and through you and combine you together and then only then will you begin to function so that I am a light in this world. Because if Satan can keep you from believing that you can hear and understand God, then there's nothing that you will do and your colors will not shine and there will be no light. Understand that you belong to the king. And he is ushering into you his blessings that cannot be taken from you and that can not at times be replicated in this world. It is just beyond this. And here's the problem we face. Those people who look at you and say, you're just crazy. You used to say that. How many of you used to look at Christians and go, they're just nuts? You know why? 
Because you live within this section of life and you have no spiritual understanding of what God is doing. But he said, when I bring you into Jesus, not only do I give you a spiritual understanding of what I'm doing in your life, but I have you, give you an understanding of what's happening in the world that you have belonged to before so that you know how God is entering into that moment. Let me show you how that works. Pam and I have some very close friends whose marriage is going through really tough times. They don't live in this city, so don't try to figure out who I'm talking about. And it's not Pam and me, okay? So they have been separated for two months. She's been going to see a counselor, he's been going to see a counselor, and then they've been coming together with another counselor to talk about marriage issues. And they've surrounded around them followers of Jesus, good friends, speaking into their lives. About two Tuesdays ago, they met together for the first time after two months being separated, and she went with with a thought, embracing herself, that he was going to say, I want a divorce. They sat down, and the counselor said, well, what are we going to do? And he said, I want to make it work, which just thrilled her. So they spent a couple of days still not living in the same location, but spending time together and, and, and feeling what once was. They met on Thursday for another counseling session, and he says, before we get started, I need to say this. The last two nights I have not slept well, so I have to go with my gut. I want a divorce. Nobody saw that coming. Two days later, he sent her a letter and said, change my mind again. Now, you ladies are going, kill him, just kill him. (laughs) So how, how do they put that back together again? So the lady is trying to figure out, what am I going to do? And so she goes with her friends, and they talk to her friends, and then she goes, she's been going to a different church because she couldn't go to the church that he was going to, so she went to a different church, and she sits down with the pastor whom she's been listening to speak but never really talked to to him before and she sits down with him and they talk and when they get done he says now before you go I believe God has a passage in the scriptures that he wants you to focus on it's the part in Ephesians where it says but you being rooted and grounded in love will know the height the depth the breadth the length and God can give you more than you can ask or think according to the power that works within you and she starts sobbing because she says That's the scripture God gave us as a couple last year as we're dealing with these issues that we needed to become rooted and grounded in love. And she starts weeping. She says, I got to focus back on that. A couple days later, the couple meet together again to talk about what's going to happen now. And they meet outside the council. They they, they go have dinner together and they're talking. And and she says to him, I want to tell you what happened. And so she tells him what happened with the pastor. And when she gets done, he starts weeping. And she says, what happened to you? He said, two days ago, I met with our friends, the brothers who follow Jesus, and the church that he's going to was in a 40-day corporate fast. And so they gather together and they pray for an hour. And when they get done, one of his friends says, I believe that God has a passage of Scripture for you. Oh, you know which one it was. Same one. And they say, this is God speaking to us. It is the body of Christ discerning what God is doing around 
the kingdom and speaking what God says speaking, speak and applying redemption and righteousness and holiness. What I want to tell you is this. You think that it's by chance you get a thought about praying for someone? You think it's by chance you get a scripture to say to someone? You think it's by chance that you're thinking this may be happening? I'm telling you it is the Spirit of God speaking to you. But the voices you hear around you say, oh, I can't be. How can that happen? God's not going to speak. Yes, he is speaking to you. Now, when you're doing that, don't go around saying to people, God spoke to me, 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 God spoke to me. Because sometimes you're going to be wrong and other times they're just going to say, but you can speak, say, you know, you hear me sometimes I get up here. I don't say to you, behold, the Lord says, I say to you, I have a sense that God is saying because I'm not perfect in this. And you get to say, yes, he did. Or, not sure. But that's how the body functions. I want to tell you that if you'll say to God this week, I want to be aware of what's happening in your kingdom. See, when you walk in here and you worship, you should have a sense, just like I do, what God's doing in this place. What he's saying. When you're at work, you're down at the, at the factory, you're down at GE, you should have a sense of what God's doing in that place. Not super spiritual. You don't go walking around going, Kumbaya, my Lord, pass the wrench. Kumbaya. You, you don't. But you have an awareness. And the Spirit of God says to you, Hey, go talk to that person. And then you find out they're going through a tough time and you say, I believe in prayer. Can I pray for you? And they may say yes, they may say no, but you offered. The Spirit is the core of community action. And finally, we've got to make Jesus the mind of our new thinking. We have the mind of Christ. We have the thoughts of Jesus. Do you catch that? We have the thoughts of Jesus. And it doesn't make us elitist. You don't walk around saying, I think like Jesus, and you're a cruddy sinner. Now Jesus will heal me after you punched me out. Don't, 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 don't. Do you want to know the mind of Christ? It is the understanding of what that death and resurrection means. It means we have an understanding that Jesus came to this earth and gave up everything he had to serve us and therefore had the power to do it. Because God's power is only given to servants. And he says, you guys do the same thing because you're tapped into my mind. So now you live that life. You say, what can I do to serve other people? I will sacrifice whatever it takes to serve, and I have the power to do it. And I was thinking about this yesterday, and I think, but, but wait, wait, these are just going to be words. They're just words, God. Just words floating over people's heads. So let me put it in, in practicalities. We don't have time to hear God or do what God's doing or serving other people because we don't have time, we don't have dollars, and we don't have passion. Not that we don't have those, it's just that we have, we've given them out to other places. So how many of you say, you know, I have so much extra time this week, I didn't know what to do. How many of you say, my budget, man, can, can you tell me where I can spend a thousand bucks? And your passion says, I'm going this way. So here's what I'm telling you. If we want to have the mind of Christ and plug into what His Spirit is doing around us, we must... Here it is in practicalities. Hang with me. 
you got to sit down with Jesus uninterrupted for some lengths of time during the week. You have to get up earlier or stay up later or do whatever uninterrupted and just say, Jesus, what are you thinking? What are your holy scriptures telling me I should know about you? Explain to me the depths of your death and resurrection. And here's what will happen. You sit down with Jesus and you say, here, here's my time. What is not what you want there? I'll clear it out so we have margins so that we can have time together. Here's my resources. I will, I will get rid of my debt so that I have margins of dollars so I can resources to people that you want me to bless. And Jesus, what is the passion you have for me? I thought this job was my passion, but what do you want me to do? And when that happens, I'm going to tell you that God, He begins to shift your life. Can you give me a couple minutes? Because I've got to tell you this story. She stood up here before you. Her name is Colleen. Colleen felt like everything had crashed on her, and you know her story. She's, she's told it to you. So she took an overdose of pills, ended up at UPMC Hospital in Pittsburgh. Her, her organs were shutting down, her liver was basically destroyed, and she was going to die. She was waiting for a transplant for a liver. A friend of hers from way back worked in that hospital and just by chance saw her name on a list. Went to the doc, said what happened. She went in to Colleen, shut the door and said, here's the deal. You've destroyed your liver. Probably won't be enough time to get a transplant. You're going to die. But there's something we can do. She puts her hands on her where the liver will be in the body and she prays a healing prayer in Jesus' name. And within hours, the liver functions normally. She's healed. She walks in the doors of this location and finds some people who are followers of Jesus and she says, can you tell me about this Jesus? I think he healed me. She starts this process of understanding the death and the resurrection of Jesus and begins to understand that she has now been immersed in the righteousness and the redemption and the holiness of Jesus. She begins to understand that to the degree that she says, I want to serve And she has this sense in all that God is doing. God's saying, I want to take you and I want to move you down to Haiti where there are so many people who are hurting because of that earthquake. And she says, I will go, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. And somebody calls her and says, I think you want to go to Haiti, don't you? I'll pay everything to get you there and keep you there. So she came up here a couple weeks ago. We laid hands on her and prayed. And she sends this letter. I can't read it all to you, but I'll read parts of it. The first week, a nursing student and I set up our own clinic at the orphanage, and we were averaging 150 people per day coming for care. We've seen many wounds and fractures in moms and six ba sick babies. One baby was very malnourished and dehydrated two months old, two months old and dehydrated. And when mom handed me this infant, I thought he was dead. He was unable to open his eyes, cry, or even move, and his breathing was very slow. The mom, who's 24 years old, gave birth to her baby a week before the quake, and her home was destroyed by the earthquake, and her husband was killed. She was unable to get much food for herself over the past two months, and so she stopped producing milk, and therefore the infant was not getting any food. We were able, with much of God's help, to start an IV in the baby's head and slowly rehydrate him. 
And after his third day with us, the baby began crying. And I can't tell you how amazing that sound was to hear. He was able to eventually start sucking on a syringe with half formula and half saline. Praise God for saving this little one's life. We set up a tent for mom and sent her on her way with much baby formula and food and water for herself. She was so thankful. Where will happiness strike next? Wherever the generosity of God comes through flesh. We did a shoe distribution to the kids, and that was so exciting to get them new shoes. They all had just been running around barefoot when there are so many dangerous and disgusting things on the ground. One day I had a nail go right through my shoe when we were cleaning up debris. didn't pierce my skin but made me nervous with all these children running around in their bare feet. The next day a couple of kids refused to put their clothes on, but they had their new shoes on. (laughs) Where will happiness strike next? We took a shower for the first time out in the rain on Thursday, and it was the best feeling ever. It only rained once so far, and thank God it did, because the well at the orphanage had become dry the very same day that it rained so hard and filled up the entire well again. Praise God. Where will happiness strike next? Church service is very similar here to ours. Some of the songs I even recognize, such as Worthy is the Lamb, it's just in Creole. They love God with all their heart and worship Him every day, and every morning they all pray and sing together, and, and the same with at night. The children at the orphanage do the same thing, and it's like listening to angels sing. It brings chills to me, and the only difference is that the Haitians don't kneel or bow their heads. They lay flat on the ground, screaming and crying out to God for help. It is truly heartbreaking to watch their desperation and know their desperation. Well, I could go on and on for days, but I wanted to touch base with everyone and let everyone know I was doing all right. The needs here are so great and so devastating that I, cannot, I can't not be here to help. Lives are being saved and people are being fed and clothed, but it just does not seem like we have even done the tiniest bit to help. It's just so overwhelming. They have taught me so much, and I know I will never be the same again. Where will happiness strike next? Wherever the generosity of God comes through human flesh. Wherever his people color their friendships. Wherever people color their world and my question to us today is this where is that for us this week will you stand thank you for letting me take some time with you this morning and I want to pray for you right now. If, and if you want to know more about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, just stop at our information desk and say, Pastor said there's a gift for me to tell me more about Jesus, and they'll give that to you and even talk with you. So my prayer for you today is this, that you will live as citizens of his kingdom and that you will be aware of what God is saying to you so that just like Colleen, you will be at the right place at the right time. Just like those people around that couple that were going to divorce and are still working through it, they're hearing God's voice. You can do that today. And that's what makes us color this world. So now may you discover His righteousness, His redemption, and His holiness in your life. May you walk with courage and may you hear clearly what God is doing around you. May you walk with an understanding of the mind of Christ. And may you discover that as you and others listen, there is this combination that makes an incredible light and people's lives are radically changed because you follow Jesus and have loved God with your whole heart and your neighbor as yourself. 
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.